Hello, and welcome to Hansard But Sleepy, for people who love Parliament, and for people who love sleep. Today, we'll be reading from Volume 662 of the House of Commons. Let's get started. Export Licenses, High Court Judgment, 20 June 2019, Volume 662, 11.55 AM. The Secretary of State for International Trade and President of the Board of Trade, Dr. Liam Fox. With permission, Mr. Speaker, I will make a statement about the High Court judgment on military export licenses to Saudi Arabia. Today, the Court of Appeal handed down its judgment following the appeal by Campaign Against Arms Trade against the Divisional Court's decision in July 2017 to dismiss CAAT's claim for a judicial review of licensing decisions about military exports to Saudi Arabia for possible use in the conflict in Yemen. The case was heard by the Court of Appeal between 9 and 11 April this year. The original judicial review and the appeal relate to decisions made between December 2015 and February 2017. Since the Divisional Court's judgment in July 2017, the government have continued to apply the rigorous and robust multi-layered process of analysing and analysis in making our licensing decisions, as highlighted in that judgment. We have, in the words of the 2017 judgment, engaged in anxious scrutiny, indeed what seems like anguished scrutiny at some stages. The government have always taken their export control obligations very seriously and continue to do so. There were three grounds of appeal. The judgment found in the government's favour on two of them and against on the other, referred to as ground one. We disagree with the judgment against the government on ground one and will seek permission to appeal against it. Today's judgment is not about whether the government have made the right or wrong decisions about granting export licenses, but concerns the rationality of the process used to reach decisions. The process was upheld by the Divisional Court in July 2017. The central issue in relation to military exports to Saudi Arabia in the context of the conflict in Yemen is Criterion 2C of the Consolidated EU and National Arms Export Licensing Criteria, which states that the government will quote, not grant a license if there is a clear risk that the items might be used in the commission of a serious violation of international humanitarian law. Unquote. 
The criteria provide the rules for assessing military exports. Among other things, they cover concerns about human rights and international humanitarian law, the development of weapons of mass destruction, international obligations including sanctions and treaty commitments, and the risk of diversion. They provide a thorough and rigorous risk assessment framework for the reaching of licensing decisions. As the judgment makes clear, the Secretary of State responsible for licensing decisions has to rely on advice from those with specialist, diplomatic and military knowledge. In relation to Criterion 2C, that means advice from the Foreign Secretary. Before the establishment of the Department for International Trade in 2016, the decision-maker was the then Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. In July 2016, the responsibility passed to me. So, how have decisions been made under Criterion 2C? We have used six strands of information and analysis to inform decisions. Analysis of all allegations of breaches of international humanitarian law that are known to us. An understanding of Saudi military procedures. Continuing engagement with the Saudis at the highest level. Post-incident dialogue, including dialogue with respect to investigations. Saudi public commitments to international humanitarian law and regular international humanitarian law assessments based on developments in the conflict in Yemen. Each of these strands takes into account a wide range of sources and analysis, including those of a sensitive nature, to which other parties, such as non-governmental organisations and the United Nations, do not have access. Taken together, these strands of analysis and information, which are reviewed regularly by the FCO in comprehensive reports to the Foreign Secretary, and which engage continuously with the record of the Saudis in relation to international humanitarian law, form the basis of the Foreign Secretary's advice to the Secretary of State making licensing decisions. Given all this, why did CAAT appeal the 2017 judgment? The ground on which the government lost in the Court of Appeal judgment concerned whether we were under an obligation to make some overall assessment of whether there had been historical violations of international humanitarian law, including whether a pattern of violations could be discerned. Our approach is in line with the EU common position. It is therefore focused on a predictive evaluation of risk as to the attitude and future conflict of the Saudi-led coalition and recognise the inherent difficulties of seeking to reach findings on international humanitarian law for specific incidents where we do not have access to the complete information. Indeed, the Divisional Court pointed to the self-evident impracticality of doing so. Let's skip ahead.
12.04pm. Barry Gardiner, Brent North, Labour. I thank the Secretary of State for advanced sight of the statement. This week, the House marked in debate the 70th anniversary of the Geneva Convention and the 20th anniversary of the United Nations Security Council first putting on its agenda the protection of civilians in armed conflict. The irony of today's judgment by the Court of Appeal is that the United Kingdom is the penholder at the Security Council for that mandate. We are supposed to be the guardians of international humanitarian law, not the people found in breach of it. The Court of Appeal's ruling is a damning indictment of the government's handling of export licenses to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It finds that their handling has not been lawful. The court found that the government, quote, made no concluded assessments of whether the Saudi-led coalition had committed violations of international humanitarian law in the past during the Yemen conflict and made no attempt to do so, unquote. Does the Secretary of State accept that this constitutes a clear breach of the government's legal obligations to assess an export destination's country respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, and that under Criterion 2C of the licensing criteria, the government should have carried out such an assessment and denied licenses if there was, quote, a clear risk that the items might have been used in the commission of a serious violation of international humanitarian law. The Secretary of State has tried to excuse himself by pleading that this judgment is now not about whether the government have made the right or wrong decision, but about whether the decision-making process was rational. Surely even he must understand that if the decision-making process was not rational, the government could have had no confidence that it was correct, and that it therefore follows that he could have had no confidence that there was no material risk of these exports being used, contrary to international humanitarian law. Let's skip ahead again. Dr. Fox. The House has grown accustomed to the outraged tone of the Honourable Gentleman, but it does not actually reflect the balanced tone of the judgment. He said in his questions that this country had been found in breach of international humanitarian law. I find that outrageous, coming from the official opposition of this country, and I hope that he will retract it. I think the record will show that that is completely untrue. It is an outrageous slur on this country. The Honourable Gentleman raised a number of valid and important questions, and I shall try to take them in turn as best I can. He asked about open licences. They are subject to the same scrutiny, and sometimes take between two and five months to pass so they are not a means of bypassing the scrutiny set out in the consolidated criteria. I think that the House will be clear on that. 
as to how we look at existing licenses and at licenses elsewhere. I have made it clear that we will review all licenses in the light of the court's judgment. It is worth noting, however, that the campaign against arms trade did not seek an order to suspend licenses and that the court has not ordered that in its judgment. Let's skip ahead again. Dr. Julian Lewis, New Forest East, Conservative. Do the government accept that, as the years have rolled by since the 9-11 atrocities, it has become harder and harder to justify the closeness of our relationship with Saudi Arabia, but in defense of what the government are trying to do, would it not be sensible for my right honourable friend to have conversations with the foreign secretary, perhaps with a view to publishing a digest of some of the representations that we make to the Saudis, in trying to keep them from straying further away from acceptable standards of international behaviour? Let's move on to another part of Hansard. We'll stay within the same volume. Volume 662. Access to Justice 2.19pm Bambus Carolambus Enfield and Southgate Labour I beg to move that this house has considered court closures and access to justice pleased to have secured this debate. It concerns a topic of extreme importance, the rule of law and justice in our country. One of the underlying tenets of our legal system is that there should be equality before the law. I shall shortly explain how the piecemeal way in which the government have implemented the court closures coupled with the cuts in legal aid, has undermined that principle and left vulnerable people, disabled people, and those with low incomes trying to gain access to justice with the scales firmly tipped against them. Our legal system can only deliver justice if everyone can access it fairly and engage with it. But the fact is that those pursuing local justice now find that it is not so local. 
my first charge against the government is that the court closure program since 2010 has been disjointed and fragmented and is not logical. Cambridge Magistrates Court is a fine modern court, purpose-built in 2010. It is close to the railway and bus stations in central Cambridge, has modern facilities, and is ideally placed to serve the needs of the local community. Last year, it somehow found its way on to a list of eight courts that were due to be closed this year for allegedly being underused, dilapidated, or close to other services. Of those eight, seven have been or will be closed by the end of the year. The Cambridge Court survived only because it was on a long finance lease with restrictions. Had that not been the case, it would surely have closed a mere nine years after it had opened. This bizarre situation demonstrates the inconsistent decision-making of ministers. Then there is the chaos and confusion surrounding the closure of Lambeth County Court in a prime location in Cleaver Square in Kennington. In 2015, it was announced that the court would close despite overwhelming consultation responses opposing the move and that all housing possession cases would be transferred to Camberwell Magistrates Court. Then Camberwell was earmarked for closure and so a new plan was hatched. In early September 2017, Lambeth closed but some court users were told that it would remain open to deal with some possession cases, while others would be dealt with at Stratford and at Clerkenwell and Shoreditch County Court. Then court users were told that the Inner London Crown Court would deal with Lambeth's possession cases. Finally, it was settled that they would be dealt with at Clerkenwell and Shoreditch. Just shows how ill prepared Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Services is to deal with its own court closures. Debbie Abrahams, Oldham East and Saddleworth, Labour. I congratulate my honourable friend on securing the debate. Oldham Magistrates Court was closed a few years ago. What is so disappointing is that there has been no compensation in the form of reasonable adjustments to accommodate disabled people. For example, those with agoraphobia who want to give evidence via a video link. Is that not an absolute travesty? Disabled people already face a host of difficulties and this is yet another. 
Bambus Carolambus. That is an excellent point. It typifies the piecemeal way in which the closures have been implemented. The process has not been joined up. I believe that it has been driven by cost-cutting measures rather than an overarching view. I shall say more about that later. According to the Law Society, there are now no youth courts in the boroughs of Southwark, Lewisham or Greenwich. All the cases from those boroughs go now to the Bromley Youth Court. The four boroughs have a higher total population than the cities of Leeds and Manchester combined, yet they have to make do with one youth court for all their needs. Let's move on a little bit. Alex Chalk, Cheltenham, Conservative. Will the defendant give way? This yields laughter from the house. I am so sorry for calling the honourable gentleman a defendant. He is not a defendant at all. He is an honourable and upstanding member of the house. The honourable gentleman has made an important point about defendants attending court, and he has made an important point about travel costs. However, we must keep our feet on the ground. If acquitted, the defendant will ordinarily be entitled to the reimbursements of his travel costs. Only guilty defendants will be required to pay. Does the honourable gentleman not accept that that, too, is an important point? Bambus Carolambus. I plead not guilty to being a defendant. While what the honourable gentleman has said may be the case, the fact remains that these costs are incurred initially by the person making the journey, which causes hardship in the short term. We're a hobhouse, Bath, Liberal Democrats. Is it not also true that people often do not know exactly what the procedures are and are deterred by uncertainty about the costs that they will face? Bambus Carolambus. The Honourable Lady is absolutely right. Many people do not obtain the legal advice that they need to make such informed decisions, and that, too, is part of the problem. Robert Neal, Bromley and Chislehurst, Conservative. The Honourable Gentleman made a wrong career move at some point. This yields laughter from the House. At the risk of attempting to cross-examine him, may I suggest that the answer to that point might be that, while it is perfectly true that the acquitted defendants will be entitled to apply for the return of their costs, there is a broader public interest in bringing the guilty defendants to court so that they can be convicted and justice can thereby be done. 
Bambus Carolambus. The honourable gentleman has made an excellent point. He is quite right. That is indeed the case. Women's Aid has highlighted the fact that, in rural areas in particular, survivors of domestic abuse must travel long distances to reach family courts. Apart from the question of childcare arrangements and the cost of travel, there is a serious safety concern, as the perpetrators of the abuse may be travelling on the same route at the same time, owing to the infrequency of public transport services in those areas. That has the potential to make an already stressful and harrowing experience even worse. I note that Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service has confirmed that it is considering whether to pay for taxis to ferry defendants, 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 and witnesses from the most remote part of the camp to ferry defendants and witnesses from the most remote parts of the country to hearings. This just goes to demonstrate that little or no consideration has been given to the impact of court closures on court users. As alluded to by my honourable friend, the member for Oldham East and Saddleworth, Debbie Abrams, there is a court modernisation programme, and most people are broadly supportive of this £1.2 billion programme and making best use of the technology to help alleviate the pressures on courts and tribunals. But this is not the panacea for court closures. There are those who will be digitally excluded due to difficulty in reading or writing even those who can navigate their way through the technology will still need proper advice. Let's skip forward. Debbie Abrams. My honourable friend is talking about the impact of court closures on access to justice. If we look in a cumulative way at all the different cuts, for example, to legal aid, as well as what he is describing now, we see that the lack of access to justice that many of our constituents are facing is profound. Does he agree that this is a real indictment and shows the impact of this government's policies on the justice system? Bambus Carolambus. My honourable friend makes an excellent point. She is certainly right about the cumulative effect of cuts to legal aid and court closures, making it harder for the most disadvantaged to access justice as they should be able to. Local justice and fairness and equality before the law need to apply to everyone equally. The court closures programme has fundamentally failed and skewed things against those on low incomes and the disadvantaged. This has to stop, and has to stop now. Justice must be for everyone, not just those who can afford it. 
Robert Neal, Bramley and Chislehurst, Conservative. It is a pleasure to follow the Honourable Member for Enfield, Southgate, Bambus Carolambus, my fellow Justice Committee member, and I congratulate him on securing this debate on a very important topic. I was happy to have been a supporter of his application for the debate, and I am grateful to the Backbench Business Committee for giving us this opportunity. Access to justice is a fundamental issue. It is not just a transaction between the parties to a case. It is fundamental to the running of a civilized society. It ought to be regarded as not just a transactional matter between individuals either but as something that is the warp and woof of the checks and balances that make our society work. Therefore, the right to have access to justice is a fundamental civic right of every individual and it is important that we aim to produce a system that achieves that without unreasonable obstacles. Let's stop there. but sleepy for people who love parliament and for people who love sleep today we heard from volume 662 all of Hansard is available online for free if you've enjoyed listening to this episode why not think about subscribing via Anchor, Spotify, or any other way you get your podcasts. Thank you again, and good night.